listening to the SLCC podcast series What's on the Agenda. Each episode brings you content created especially for clerks. The shows include question and answer sessions with sector experts, special guests and much more. Learn more about our podcasts by visiting us at slcc.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Shelley Parker and here today with other representatives from the Society of Local Council Clerks, that's the professional membership body for clerks to town, parish and community councils across England and Wales. And we're going to be discussing some planning issues in the sector, particularly around working with developers. We have Linda Carter, SLCC's president, and Andrew Towlerton, its national planning advisor. And we're fortunate enough to have alongside us Sam Stafford, planning director at the Home Builders Federation, the membership organisation for around 80% of house builders of new developments in the UK. That's the big, well-known national developers, right through to the small regional businesses. So let's start with Linda. Linda, tell us a bit about your background in the local council sector. I've been working in the local council sector for 27 years now, initially for large town councils as deputy town clerk and then town clerk. I've worked with a number of developers in those areas because I've always managed the open spaces which tend to get transferred as new developments are completed. I'm currently semi-retired and working for three smaller councils, um, two as clerk and one as their planning officer, predominantly because we've got two very large developments in the parish, which will increase it from uh, 650 houses to over three and a half thousand. And Andrew? No surprise, I'm a planner by background. I'm the National Planning Advisor Society and Local Council Council part-time. I'm also a clerk to a medium-sized parish council in Sheffield. Um, Sam, you've had an interesting journey in the planning world. Can you tell us some more about it? I've been working in planning since 2000, mostly as a planning consultant in multidisciplinary environments. And I kind of gravitated by by chance and because I found the work most interesting into strategic land and land promotion. That led me to the best part of eight years, I think, at Barrett Developments as a regional strategic land director. So looking after a portfolio of strategic sites being managed through the through the planning process. And that led me to Home Builders Federation. So I joined as planning director in July of last year. I guess to start things off, we ought to learn a bit more about how the sector is currently working with developers. And Andrew, I wonder if you could fill us in on that. I mean, my experience is it's mixed. It's in the context of where the government is very much encouraging parish councils to get much more involved in planning issues. Neighbourhood plans just being one example of that. That's probably the most obvious example. But there's lots of things which the government are encouraging parish councils and local councils to get much more involved in shaping the guiding. And part of that, there's a lot of guidance about working more closely with developers, particularly house builders, but also other developers. Mm-hmm. Wind turbines, that are most recently, the government's encouraging them. It's mixed. I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, you know. I think some, some generally some parish councils find it difficult or confusing and they don't know who the right person to speak to. My experience, but God's bear in mind, I'm largely come from larger parish councils and developers generally quite okay about meeting with it, even if they know they're coming in from a, a different perspective. But I generally think we can work a lot better around it and there's a lot of misunderstandings and there are barriers, you know. The, the resources available to parish councils 
are very difficult and available to house builders. And often it seems that parish councils get sort of channeled down the neighbour plan route, but that's just one way of which they can engage in the development industry. Linda, you have a, you're currently working with developers. Can you tell us about your experience a bit and what your perception is? And some of them are very good. Some of them are not so good. But when you can make a meaningful connection with them, it's actually really good to have that two-way conversation and interaction because very often if you've got a development that borders a residential area, then the residents who are most affected can be quite uh, vocal, quite upset and need somebody to be able to liaise for them because very often if they contact the developers directly, they won't get a really good response, usually because they're angry. Actually, mediating works really well. And, and Sam, have you had lots of dealings with, with town and parish councils yourself? Yes, a fair bit. Um, I, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience, but as a matter of course, as a planning consultant and then at Barrett, I would always try to reach out to local councillors and parish councils and anybody likely to have an interest in or an influence over the ultimate determination of a planning application, I would always try to try to make contact with. My starting point would be that I'm not trying to sell you a scheme. I'm not trying to convince you of its benefits. I'm not trying to ultimately get you to support it. I'm just open to having a two-way dialogue. So when at least people are objecting, should they be minded to do so, they can at least object on the basis of knowing everything about the scheme rather than, you know, any misinformation or rumours or half-truths or speculation. So as a bare minimum, there is a constructive dialogue, but all being well, you know, a platform to have a genuinely two-way you know, kind of conversation and, and allow residents to, to influence whatever it is that's being proposed. I would always adopt that approach, but I accept that perhaps not. The development industry includes many actors with many different motivations and approaches. What about for all of you, really? Um, the NIMBY approach, is that still alive and well? And is it difficult to balance the needs of the community against the profits of the, the developers? I think the issue is generally for many communities, when we talk about house building, is it's seen, seen as a negative, not a plus. You know, they're worried about loss of green spaces. They're worried about the impact it's going to have doctor surgeries. They're worried about the impact it's going to have on schools. And it does sometimes feel that the sector is opposed <laughs> you know we're on you know you know we're on different sides of the camp but it's so there is a degree of that you know i don't think it's but you look at neighbor planning and the other things there is an appetite for parish councils very much to shape and guide the development which is taking place in their area there's two aspects to it there's about the quantum of house building but once the quantum's determined then i think communities are key to set down and see what's the right type of housing or development which is taking place in their area and everybody wants to work together to get you know, to make sure it's the right development of the right, of the right time. It does seem to me as if planning development generally, we're talking where it's contentious. So we're talking about, generally speaking, the rural setting, the shire setting, the market towns and the key service centre villages type, type, of, uh, type of locations. It does seem to me that planning and development is more rancorous than I can ever remember, which is a function of broader societal trends. But... I think that there is a an expectation was set around the time of the Localism Act and that open source planning of whatever that was, 2009, which fed into conservative and 
coalition commitments 2010 localism act 2012 i think a a localism genie was let out of the bottle and if you consistently tell i think michael gove was again in the sunday papers talking about building the homes that we need but putting communities in control you know an expectation was set around the time of the localism act that communities are you know you, you are in control and yet at the same time but with the presumption being introduced in 2012 and local plan coverage remaining poor, an inherent tension was built up there in fostering a kind of period amongst the land promotion community, particularly where there was windows to win appeals on five-year supply grounds, that was, which was perhaps a, more of a motivation to get applications in and to appeal than actually engaging meaningfully to take advantage of that land supply position. So these there are myriad forces but that kind of period i think largely set up or helped to create this period of of rancor where you've got expectations of boosting supply but at the same time expectations amongst communities that can have more of a meaningful influence that perhaps they actually do do you think um, towns and parishes are, are actually ready for it do they have the evidence to show what they need in their communities or don't need in their communities and should they be Involved at an early stage when it looks like a development is coming into your village? I would like to see uh, town and parish councils more involved at an earlier stage. I think certainly there are myriad discussions go on between land promoters, developers and the local authority pre-planning. And so by the time it actually gets to the planning committee, much of what the parish council could or would like to influence has already been determined. And I think that's the frustration for many town and parish councils in that they feel they know their communities and therefore what is needed and the land promoters and developers are being guided or in discussion with the planning authority, which has a, may have a different view. Not always. Sometimes it works really well. But more often than not, the, the parish councils feel that they are somehow out of the loop. Uh, and what about these statements of community involvement, Andrew? Uh, are, are they a really useful tool for bringing everybody on board? Well, based on my experience, they're a very poor tool for bringing <laughs> community involved. They're very easy. I mean, it's interesting that neighbourhood plans have to go to a referendum, but if you're that comes in your local plan, why don't you put that to a referendum? I don't think there's any planning authority probably the country, who think if their local plan went to a referendum, they would get it through and they hark back to the statement of the community involvement. For me, it's just a limited, you know, and it's got, and the other issue with staying in the community, it's not backed by anything. I can, I don't want to get on, I can point to lots of examples where local plan authorities haven't followed their statement of community involvement and then they're asked, what can you do next? And there isn't a lot you can do. There's no appeal mechanism. Or, or you could argue the courts, but there's been I'm not aware of anyone who's gone to the courts on the back of back of a failure for somebody to uphold the statement of community involvement. Do developers find them useful? No. I mean, I think they are a at a at a in support of a local plan as a evidence base for an inspector to to show the, the consultation that's you know that, that's gone through. There is an administrative kind of function there it's it's part of the evidence base the statement of community involvement is kind of like then the framework that planning up that or the applicants making planning applications would have to would have to go through but again there's a kind of box ticking quality to to that mm. there's a validation checklist we prepared a statement of community involvement we spoke we tried to speak to them we tried to speak to them we tried to speak to them and it's, no, nobody reads it like i said before i would want to be identifying those parties 
who, like I said before, have an influence over or an interest in that planning application. And I would be drawing up a list of councillors, parish councils, schools, residence groups, sports clubs, whoever it might be, and approach them if I was promoting land strategically. There's a time and a place, but probably I would probably make contact as soon as I'd signed a or an option agreement had been signed just to say we will start, we will be promoting. Mm. Nothing will happen for two years, but the local when the local plan does, we will be making representations. Do you want to have a chat? And pre-planning application, you'd want to be going through that process as well. I wouldn't be doing that in accordance with the statement of community involvement because it's probably three years old and you know, it doesn't... It's interesting, isn't it, that some parish councils, depending on how they get on with their principal councils, are right in at the beginning at the pre-application stage and talking to them about Section 106 agreements, SIL and even the new infrastructure levy, and some aren't. Do you think there needs to be some uniformity across local authorities about how they're involved with their local town and parish councils? I don't know how you do that. I mean, so in some authorities, you can have good conversations with councillors and who want to be involved and even within the same council, mm. some councillors in another ward might not want to and it's the same with a parish council some you know a clerk will email you straight away and say yes we'll get in touch with the chair would you like to come to the next meeting and the parish council you know five miles away might take a completely different completely yeah. different approach i don't know how you would go about i mean the same to give you involvement you know as a manual would say you as the development community need to you know this is what you need to do to engage with communities and if people want to embrace that and really buy into it on all sides, okay, fine. But if there are, you know, any part of that network of influencers and organisations choose not to, quickly, you know, kind of breaks down. Andrew and Linda, you, you both work alongside completely different local planning authorities. Have you found that they've been receptive to your inquiries about new developments? I guess that's difficult. I mean, we're in a situation where planning authorities have now been combined into a unitary. Mm -hmm. uh, previously, the planning authority that I was in was very good. The other two, I, I can't really speak that that much about because I don't know them that well, but I'm, I'm hopeful that the system that the one good one had will prevail. It's early days. But I think one of the variables that I think is really significant is the parish clerk. Where you've got full-time clerks or town clerks, or clerks that have a wide range of skills and knowledge in their background, then they are much more likely to want to engage with the planning authority mm. and, and make some meaningful progress with discussions. But I think there are an awful lot, as we know, of very small parishes with part-time clerks. And if they're only working five hours a week, actually trying to build in the time to progress discussions with developers and planning authorities is really difficult. Andrew, what about um, in, in Yorkshire? Yes, my experience with them is very different from two neighbouring. One who's very active at signposting developers towards to our parish council. Maybe it's a larger parish council and saying you need to engage with them earlier the very least, you need to know at the upfront if they're going to oppose your scheme. And then the other one takes a very different approach, which doesn't encourage developers to meet with parish councils. The problem with that, because I've been careful, that's it's gone to an inquiry now, so a local plan inquiry, and the parish council are very upset to find out there's been discussions been taking place mm. on site for a number of years, and they knew nothing about it. And the other thing I'll just add, which I don't want Sam really to comment on, is although the areas which are viewed as poor, it's interesting, many of the communities there feel that even in areas where the local plan authority don't engage very effectively with them, is the perception, 
they feel they're better served in parished areas and non-parished areas. I'm dealing with a group now who are trying to set up a campaign group to engage with the developer. And it's right. Why would the developer meet with a group who's just announced that they're friends of whatever? And in parished areas, there is this mechanism for them to work with. And I was later. I was going to ask you some about your perceptions of working in parished areas mm. and working in unparished areas. Yeah, is it easier or more difficult? I mean, yes. I mean, the parish is a if you if you're two different sites and one is parished and one isn't, you do have at least a platform and to have a conversation with with a community where and I, and I do find that a significant missing link can be the the borough, the ward councillors who I don't know. For me, there is a responsibility there to be a you know a significant link, but many seem very wary of predetermination and not wanting to to be involved or you know there's a local election three years out of four and it's just you know in the too difficult to too difficult to touch box i think if you're looking at where within this process a more meaningful engagement can happen i would be looking for ward councillors to take a to take a more coordinated role so, and bring so people together. So does that mean together. a ward councillor from a borough or from yeah. a borough council unitary authority working closely with the, the very hyper-local area, i.e. The, the town or parish council or local community group? Yes, because you've got, if you've got a, a, in a in a parished area, parish, and more often than not, there will be more sites being promoted on the edge of a town or village than would be allocated. There are m- multiple actors involved, the local planning authority, the departments within the within the authority and the characters involved locally there are lots of people there and i think the the link between all of them could and should be the the ward councillor personal opinion um something, something else that i know um some certainly town councils um, fall foul of is that a development gets built and it's got a couple of really nice play areas on uh, perhaps a recreational area some open space who looks after that we know that there seems to be a trend towards management companies taking that on, and town and parish councils are sometimes completely bypassed. What, what are your all of your views really on on land being in public ownership rather than for a set of residents who, who perhaps don't really want to take on that responsibility, and the place just just deteriorates in the end. I would advocate parish councils to take the land, but then that's because that's what I've always done and that's why I'm in the council that I am at the, mo- the moment because that was what they want to do. The developments that we have coming are on the urban edge and all the urban developments that the previous borough council worked on, they advocated management companies because that was their preferred option. We're very fortunate in that we've managed to get Section 106 agreements for the two developments that say that the parish count, they're offered to the principal authority, which will then offer them to the parish council. So, you know, we are in line to take those. I like to think that as local councillors, they will take more pride in that land, in maintaining it and in responding to residents' concerns than a management company. So every time I would advocate to the town parish councils, no matter how small you are, you can cope with this. It's not a big job. Just do it. And commutable sums often come into this, don't they? Um, how, how do developers feel about working with town and parish councils where it has to put in a maintenance fee for the next, it's usually five years, I think, isn't it? Or commutable over a longer period of time? I, I would suggest that the, the individual organisations involved would probably be agnostic insofar as you know, there is a build the houses, whatever the mechanism is, move on and sell them and we'll, you know, go somewhere else. But for me personally, I imagine the vast majority of land managers and 
planning managers and you know individuals within those organisations would much rather, as Linda says, would much rather see them, the parish council take them on. I think as a general point of principle, that would be a starting point. And more, but I, my my sense is more often than not, if the parish council isn't reluctant, and the local planning authority can be be reluctant and would sooner divest of its responsibility and just have it as a management company. But as you say, it's, there's no you want a, more of a direct link between you know the control and the community rather than some couple of lads turning up in a white transit van every six months i would entirely agree with linda there's buy-in locally isn't there it's paid for by the precept and it's looked after locally would you agree with that yeah i was going to say i mean often it feels that management companies will be an issue coming forward i suspect and it feels a bit like passing the book which they don't quite know what to do i can talk about a huge development in rotherham which they've even created a parish council around it but there's huge you know there's some big management companies out there and there are already concerns about who are they accountable to no one's accountable for this this management company they've set up and ultimately a management company strikes me when you've got large developments as like a parish council yeah, the, anyway the, yeah the liability you can yeah. move you know, the, the developer will probably want to just move that liability on rather than have it on a book and a, does it know, affect the price of the house if you're, you're going to have to add that on well there are a couple the of ways sale of, of it there are a couple of ways of doing it i would broadly speaking i would suggest that the, the commuted sum payable to the parish council to take on the maintenance will probably be the same as or you know in the same ballpark as what you would be paying the management company over the lifetime of that obligation which is why as i say i think generally speaking developers would be agnostic because the cost burden is the same but you'd sooner not have that Mm. obligation sitting on your you know sitting on a portfolio of public open open space rather just give it to the community and move and and move on you've got to have some keen residents haven't you to run a to run an association like that, really, rather than the well, the bigger ones. I think, it, it, generally speaking, it would be it would be retained by the builder with a with a responsibility to maintain it for a period of time and then have a conversation in the future. But you know, people move on and spreadsheets get you know longer and longer and longer. Un- unless, yes, it's divested to a limited company of which the residents form part and then pay into part of a ground a, you know a ground rent to pay for it depending on the size and size and scale smaller stuff developers would tend to control i think mm. bigger stuff would probably be put into a, a residents association group but it's all very faffy it's all about getting in early again isn't it for town and parish councils to make sure that that pre-application stage. We're currently being bombarded by consultations on reform to the planning system. The biggest proposals on the National Planning Policy Framework, the NPPF. What does this mean for developers, Sam? I know that you've be actually delivered evidence at a, a select committee quite recently that was looking to review planning reform. What are you, your views on, on how that's going to affect developers? There is a case, a strong case to say, and I would have some sympathy with the view that this consultation is a nakedly cynical capitulation to a block of conservative MPs who sought to hold the levelling up and regeneration bill hostage unless the government watered down the standard method and every pretty much well I think it's probably of all the policy proposals in that MPPF consultation there are probably only three that with a charitable definition could be described as being supportive of, of development all the other provisions around the standard method and the circumstances under which local authorities can plan for less than their standard method, as well as seeking to disapply the presumption in more circumstances, all point to a weakening of a commitment to maintaining housing supply. So that was the the major concern of the the development industry. And I think it was reported at the weekend that planning permissions have you know, falling to the lowest yes, level since yes. the recording in a decade and local plan after local plan is being kicked into the long grass while all this is going on. Not, not in a particularly happy place insofar as plan making So they're not concerned. going to meet their targets? Well, I mean, 300,000 is a bold target. 
and it's a case so we'll never we've never got to three hundred thousand. So why have it as a target? Well, we've never got three hundred thousand because plan coverage remains you know steadfastly poor, notwithstanding these kind of the rancor and the you know it's almost as if pl- objecting to planning applications now, whether it's you know one hundred and fifty houses on the edge of the village or fifteen hundred houses on a brownfield site in next to a tube station in London or wherever, objecting to planning applications now is just becoming a, a national pastime. It's like what people do as a hobby to relax you know sit down in the evening and write a put the soaps on have a cup of tea and write an objection to a planning application appeals are expensive businesses appeals are very expensive businesses and you know people would hbf members would much sooner not go to appeal but that you are probably factoring into your development program on the vast majority of cases you're probably factoring at least a year for a planning application and making provision within your within your programme for an appeal more often than not, which is um, unfortunate. Andrew, do you think the the NPPF proposals are going to be tying town parish councils up in knots as well? Difficult. I'm not a politician. Different things. I mean, I take a lot of what most of the, the consultation for most of the parish council were even saying they don't understand the consultation. It was a very technical questions about very detailed questions about how you calculate housing supply. And it was just about... The vast bulk of the questions were just about housing numbers and how do we get there. It did have shades of let's give greater community control, but it was very much about the aim was to give greater certainty in the planning system and for parish councils about land allocations and housing numbers. You only have to look at the number of local plans, including more I'm aware of her pausing local plans saying, let's see what's coming out of that. That's partly because I think the government potentially are trying to ride two horses. We're going to sort the housing crisis and we're going to give the communities local control, more to greater control over housing numbers. I'll see how that balances out. It's, it's an awkward, you know, it's, an, it's a difficult situation. From the parish council, there's quite a bit in the reforms, which I think mo- many parish councils will support and welcome. So there's a lot of things, very minor ways about onshore wind developments on the table again. And they're talking about giving parish councils large chunks of cash if you're willing to accept onshore wind development in your in your area so i think many parish councils i don't think it's going to stop neighbor plans or i think uncertainty will create more pressures in areas which don't have local plans to you know in place to produce neighbor plans and this design codes which hopefully we'll touch on later about the design codes it's it's challenging i don't really want (laughs) i'm not a politician yes but it's not stopping town parish councils doing neighborhood plans which is a good thing because that's localism at its best is is that a costly business normally well it's difficult i'm clark to one and we producing a neighbor plan but my own local planning authority has got a woefully out-of-date local plan ironically they could have sheffield could argue they're years ahead of the ball game because they refuse to take any land out the green belt and now it appears that they, they've got justification in their position but while that uncertainty is taking place you know we many parish councils feel they do need to produce a neighbor plan to give some certainty or control over the, the things and we are being urged down the neighbor plans to down the design code routes i don't think that's going away it's just going to get very difficult to do it when you a lack of certainty around housing numbers i think my advice to many parish councils now if you're doing neighbor plans don't really get involved in housing numbers or development and leave that for the big boys to sort out. Is it costly for it's very small parish councils doing these? They can cost a fortune when you've got environmental 
impact assessments to pay for and the rest. They're getting more and more difficult to get over the finishing line, particularly housing. I'll be careful. I'm saying, you know, I'll be very cautious for telling a neighbour plan group to go down around housing numbers even. Getting housing mix is difficult. The developers take a keen interest on some aspects of neighbour plan much more than others. So it's not only housing numbers. When you start delving to housing mix, the new kid on the block is design codes, which communities have been heavily encouraged to produce design codes. The government, there's a recognition that particularly for larger areas, you can't have a single design code which work for Cornwall or work for North Yorkshire. But they're also saying, well, the local planning authorities don't have the resources to produce small design codes. Now, you don't have to be genius to see where they're reckoning who are producing these design codes. They're looking at town and parish council saying, start producing design codes, yeah. What do developers feel about design codes and design guidance? In the same way that there is a, a wariness about mixed policies, there is probably it's probably fair to say there's an inherent wariness about design guidance but i think certainly that larger hbf members perception is that you're rolling out the same product in you know different parts of the country and things but larger larger members will have a you know significant number of facade treatments and detailing and, and material palette to choose from such that a local vernacular can be can and should be respected and smaller builders are more likely or you know more agile and are able to create a more of a bespoke product from scratch anyway so i think the issues tend to arise when these things are emerge later in the process rather than rather than early but as a point of principle as long as you're factoring things in as I say, early, but almost at bid, at bid stage, and you can be aware of them. It's when surprises emerge through the process that you know might have a, a contractual impact, if you like, that, that you can start to get some pushback. What about environmental aspect to design and sustainability? And I think it's called Passive House. It was a design that was certainly being pushed when I was dealing with neighbourhood plans in Wiltshire. Is is that something that we all have to take on board as well? Beyond a neutrality virago, which is effective moratorium in vast swathes of the country, probably the thing that I get most emails about from members is supplementary planning documents on net zero commitments and building fabric and things. Because you tend to find, I think Bristol, where we are today, have issued a climate emergency and have aspirations in this space. I think Bath and North East Somerset, not too far away, adopted an SPD with standards that go well beyond building regs. And that's a, that is an issue because to get certainly to get to something like, you know, passive house standard, the cost per plot is significantly more. And what all builders, big and small, need is is certainty over the supply chains. A lot of this stuff should be dealt with by building by building regs anyway. But authorities have issued a climate emergency and then feel the need to, you know, to follow follow through with these kind of commitments. And I'd be very wary about going beyond because building regs is a as much as it's changed and it does change a lot, if there is a consistent kind of trajectory that people can plan for in their design and their supply chain, the world is a you know is, is a simpler place. But if you've got these standards coming in and your supply chain isn't in place and that supply chain isn't perhaps mature enough insofar as the amount of actors in that space so that the cost of these things are is significantly more, it is an issue. I don't think anybody would object with the principle of moving to, you know, decarbonising housing stock and moving towards net zero as an aspiration. It's just the the issue is the a clear and consistent pathway to, to getting there. And at the minute, with authorities having different standards in different places beyond building regs, it's just very difficult to, to, to establish that clear and consistent pathway. Another demand, of course, is around affordable housing. Can you just perhaps remind me of what it normally is? Is it, is it above 10 houses in any development whereby 
you have to have affordable housing or is, am I think getting that mixed up with SIL requirements? Uh, a major application is 10 or more, but an authority, mm. an individual authority could have a policy requiring affordable mm. on schemes of three or more or five or more or 10 or more, depending on what the what their adopted policy is, what their local priorities are. Linda, you can tell us a bit about affordable housing from your own experience, can't you? I, I do know that I have seen a number of developments where the quantity of affordable housing has been reduced during the process of developing the plans and the house builder or the land promoter will ask for a viability assessment. I have seen the numbers reduced significantly on the back of viability assessments. It's quite difficult for town parish councils to make sure that they get the affordable housing they need. You have to go through loopholes around um, housing surveys, don't you, certainly in rural areas? In the neighbourhood plan, we we had to do a housing needs assessment, um, which shows significantly what the the village or the small town has, has determined uh, that it needs, and and the local authority has to support that. Is is that more difficult in villages with, with rural exception sites, Andrew? You know, often local plan authorities have targets for affordable housing, which communities expect to see something like that delivered on the site, and then what actually get is a number a lot less than they thought they were going to get in terms of affordable housing, which can be a sense of frustration. Generally, in the affordable housing, there are lots of issues with it. You know, I mean, there is around well, rural exception can be a mix of affordable housing and can be market housing, and which is often seen as some as a way that a route that some people try to get market housing and and sort of many things is definition of local. You know, when they're producing affordable housing for the local community, and you've got a massive unitary like Cornwall or potentially North Yorkshire or Northumberland. The local plan authority's definition of local to the area is very different to that village. They thought it was going to be people from that village. Often what they get is anybody who's in the whole of that Cornwall area. And it is, a, I think it's, I think every parish council is really keen to do much more around affordable housing. In many cases, they've got the land, but the barriers to doing it mm. is very, very, it's quite difficult, you know. And they don't, we don't have the contact with the registered social landlords and mm. The developers work quite closely with social landlords, don't they? And they put it out to yeah. bidding, a yeah. bidding process. There's a couple of yeah, a couple of points there. Uh, g- generally speaking, a typical local authority will have an affordable housing policy of thirty or forty percent. In a shire authority on a greenfield site on the edge of a reasonably large village that's being promoted through a local plan allocation planning permission, I'd struggle to think of many areas of the country where the land value wouldn't support thirty percent affordable housing and that's been factored into the scheme all you know all the way through if a planning application if say a dairy closes or a scrapyard or something or other and it comes to the market and the, you know the, the, the red book appraisal process is such that the cleaning up of that site for example whatever it might be does represent a significant abnormal cost that threatens the 30 percent then yes the the applicant can make the point to the local authority that either this site sits here with your expectation of 30 percent affordable or you accept that for something to come forward, only 15% is, is is viable. And yes, typically the authority will have a, a framework of registered providers who work in that area. And within that appraisal, the market housing is, you know, how much how much it costs to build, how much it costs to sell. And then the, the 30% affordable element, subject to the to the mix and the type and the tenure that the authority specify, would then, yes, I think the dip the house builder would go to six or so, or however many, four, five, six registered providers active in that area and say, what would you bid? for this element of, of this scheme. Well, Andrew mentioned exception sites. I think there's a, a rural exception site, to my mind, is a site that would not otherwise come forward for market housing with 30%, but could be deemed acceptable if it was coming forward for 100% 
affordable. Whereas if you are promoting a scheme that perhaps wouldn't otherwise get planning permission or the five-year supply is marginal or whatever it might be, and somebody is promoting 50% affordable rather than 30% and arguing that that represents an exceptional circumstance to justify the planning permission, perhaps on a greenbelt site, which would be rare because that's a big, still a big step to take, that's something slightly, slightly different. I see fewer and fewer rural exception sites, typically because if it's greenbelt, it's too contentious and the authority would push back and in a non-greenbelt setting because of the presumption that landowner was probably thinking well hang on a minute if i just hang fire for a few years we might you know this this could be either allocated or win an appeal i wouldn't want to do it because the rural exception site for 100 percent affordable will generate less of a land value than 70 percent market and 30 percent affordable exception sites are sites that would not otherwise come forward and kind of settlement hierarchy where development might occur in key service villages or things, those sites may come forward. Do you think that developers would ever work with community land trusts? I say sort of put land aside specifically for a local community land trust. If there's an adopted policy for 30% affordable and an, and an authority's adopted policy says that within that hierarchy of where that land goes to, before you speak to RPs, speak to a parish council about a community land trust or something or would that Um, help to solve uh, the problem around local people getting local affordable housing if i was promoting a a site through a local plan i'll be trying to foster local support if there's no significant numbers on a housing waiting list and making the point that either development happens in this village and 30% affordable happens in this village. And there is a cascade of local, you know, first port of call will be people on the housing waiting list in that ward, trying to get people to support a scheme on, on the basis that, you know, the council's looking at might need to allocate 1500 houses across 15 key service villages or what have you. And, you know, you'd wanting people to say, well, okay, let's have some, we need an allocation. We need 30% affordable in the village. If you're then washed over Greenbelt, for example, or in a, in a smaller village that doesn't feature in that settlement hierarchy, your chances of getting an allocation are very small, which parish council might not think is a bad idea and your chances of an exception site are you know it's very it's still very very difficult and you in a in an ideal world maybe the parish comes together to form a community land trust and does a you know reaches an agreement with a philanthropic landowner who's prepared to you know offer a couple of acres but even still getting planning permission for that would be so difficult andrew linda have you ever dealt with community land trusts or been involved with them help set up set one up because we had a bit of land it's allocated for housing mm. it's very very difficult mm. local letting policies which we're alluding to all i can say is you know the the funding's not really out there to help you get it to market you know and then eventually we end up just i think we're just easier to get mm. going down the traditional route the difficulty for the sector i suspect is that if there isn't any other mechanism to deliver affordable housing other than allocations with 20 30 percent of the housing where is this affordable housing going to come from i don't drift into the politics but if we're not getting local plans being produced or site allocations, Hmm. where is this affordable housing going to come from? Going around the table, everybody give me an idea of how we could all be working better together on on a practical level. I often go back to, I've got one of my friends, Shelley Rouse, uh, who works at Planning Advisory Service. She coined a phrase called the cascade of proportionality, by which she means, and I like I like the expression. If you had authorities within a housing market area working together on what the, the you know a housing requirement for the housing market area is and apportioning that to the borough, the borough could then apportion that its share of that housing requirement to 
the urban area, the urban fringe, the key service villages, and then it will be able to give a clear steer to parishes and neighbourhood planning groups as to what an expectation around housing in that place would be over 15 years or so. And then that parish, through its neighbourhood plan, could identify the sites that it would want to allocate and run some kind of beauty parade, for want of a better expression, between the promoter of site A, site B, site C and site D, knowing that one was going to come forward and as per the MPPF, that that neighbourhood plan then, if it's proactively allocating sites, has a degree of weight and the, if it's site A that's allocated, the promoters of site B, C and D would have to lick their wounds and come back again. That doesn't feel as if it should be too difficult. That I mean, that's what a genuinely plan-led system would look like in in my eyes. But there are so many barriers to getting to dealing with that housing market area global figure up here. There are so many barriers to the local plan getting uh, being put in place. You know, a neighbourhood plan without housing requirements is a what is that? I mean, it's a village statement, isn't it? It's not. You know, it's a it's kind of it's kind of neutral in its its aims and ambitions. Um, do you think Town Parish Council has actually sort of been bitten before by this? There was something called a village design statement, and loads of parish councils did them, and they've just been gathering dust on shelves, and that so they've had their fingers burnt along the way. Uh, Andrew, what, what what do you think that well, we should do on a practical level to make it right? My fear about design codes is it feels like we've been down here before, <laughs> <laughs> and what they're saying is design codes are going to be like village design statements with more umph, and you know they'll have real legislatively background but i'm not sure that's what the issue is really i don't think you know just giving them saying that developers you have to you have to adhere to them is really i, I, I don't get the resistance from the sector in your if, the, if there isn't going to be development in a place you know if you're not guiding development then I, I struggle you know and it's not as if you're going to turn down domestic extensions or you know the redevelopment of single plots if it's not in accordance with a village you know a village design guide so i'm not you know they need to be positive tools for managing change and if there isn't going to be change in a place i don't necessarily see the need for a tool for it but what if you haven't got on one on your shelf ready and suddenly a development comes it's around the corner that kind of cascade of proportionality is how, is how the local plan system should mm. work but there are barriers there and the presumption is still there so it may then be that a, a land promoter or a, a builder looking for outlets for you know for, for, for a few years time looks at taking on a taking on a planning application now ideally the local plan has at least got to a point where there is a housing housing re requirement and there is a, a sense in a, a settlement hierarchy that the principle of development in that place should be reasonably easy to establish if the local plan has got to a reasonably early stage. And then can you make the case that this is the most appropriate site on the edge of that village? And if you are making a planning application in those kind of circumstances, go back to where I started. I would be looking to maximise support and minimise objections by having constructive dialogue. But it's very difficult because it is so lengthy planning process. Like I said before, I, I would always advocate just do the right thing it is the right thing to try to engage it sounds that we all want to work better with developers but on a practical level with your residents what's the best way to engage them oh i think the residents will engage anyway particularly if they think it affects them we've had quarterly public meetings for 18 months now about one of our developments there's always a different mr or mrs angry that turns up and i think part of their frustration is that, as Sam alluded to, the planning process takes so long. So when you've got an initial plan in there that has an overall proposed layout that goes to an outline application and with all its 300 and 
goodness knows how many documents. You get a huge pile of documents that come through. I can remember the days when they used to come in in archive boxes, but now you just have to try and plough your way through online and find the one document you're looking for. When those come in, the residents don't understand that what comes in on that initial plan is not necessarily what's going to be built. The layout will change numerous times over the course of that, that application coming through. And in the case of one of ours, we've got an overall developer who owns the land and he's letting off pockets to different house builders. So each one is putting in a detailed application then for the pocket that they've got. And they have changed considerably just in the four years that, that I've been dealing with it. And it goes on, it goes back beyond that. And each iteration that comes through comes with a whole set of plans that the residents just don't understand and they can't see why it's changed. But we were supposed to have a green buffer at the bottom of our gardens. Now we've got a car park or we've got a sewage pumping station. Everything just changes and they have no concept of how, why, what the process is. And we've got nobody that we can put in front of them to, to answer their so questions so other than me trying to work so my way through the plans. So it's a good idea to invite developers in in an early stage to have a sort of a Q&A session with local people. I think you can do that, but you can't do that every time the plans change mm. for whatever reason. And I think that's the difficulty is that the planners engage when they first put their plans together. They, they may hold a public consultation and people will come and have a look and they'll make their comments and believe that that is what they are getting. And that's the difficulty, that by the time three or four years down the line, when the first bricks are being put in, it's not what they were expecting and they can't understand why. So is the answer that you have to be working with your local residents in a very early stage, make sure you're working with the developers at a very early stage, and as importantly, make sure your local planning authority is in on the act too. I very much echo your sort of views, and it must add to your cost. I mean, I think dialogue's mm. the answer. I think mm. design codes are really just, or some of them give mechanisms, are just a mechanism for trying to do something. And it's the focus on how can we have better dialogue than then saying, oh, we're mm. going to do this and then we're going to impose it on you as developers and then, or you say, well, we're going to, we're going to appeal. It's We've got to get the dialogue better because mine and my experience, there's some very good schemes working with developers. Little things, you're right. When communities think they're getting X and they're getting Y, that can lead to them mobilising against that development. And often it may be viability issues. And there one recently where they thought they were going to get hedgehog-friendly developments very small thing they didn't know it was the local planning authority at transpired and moved that out but the community are mobilizing against that development on what could be quite a and no one's really explained to them there's a lot of pressure about building the most environmental sustainable and it's hard to explain to a community you can't have back boxes from their perspective why can't we have houses built up to the highest level of environmental sustainability and it's viability and it's a conversation isn't it really explaining why sometimes these things can't be provided and i think dialogue like this is I think it's a really helpful starting point, yes. So the answer is to, to start talking and keep on with that dialogue well, right like, through the process. Yeah, particularly, I mean, I'm obviously, but I'm encouraging, it's in the MPPF, but it's not only that, obviously, some local planners are different, but, I, you know, I, as much as we want to say about the sector, we're all after the best thing, really, aren't we? We want mm. housing development. Yeah. We want our children to be have somewhere to live, mm. which is nice, sustainable. I suspect home builders, everybody wants the same thing. It's a dialogue. So how do we get in contact? If anybody's listening to this today, how can they get in contact with the um, HBF? Well, I could be contacted at sam.stafford at hbf.co.uk and more than happy to either signpost people to HBF members in different parts of the, you know, different parts of the country or any of the resources and material that, that we have that, that I can share with people. And I'm always more than happy to see it as part of my role to 
you know, to be you know helping to build these relationships and rapports and talk about the development process. And there's a value in putting time into these relationships. But if you can put your time into doing that to stop grenades going off just as you're heading to committee, that's time well spent. And there's a reputational point as well for all builders. You know, nobody wants to be in the local press with, you know, some glum looking councillors on the cover pointing at where the back box should have been or something. But there will be somebody, whether builder build a big or small or promoter big or small and in the and the in the case of that urban extension it sounds like you're talking about there, Linda, there would be somebody's job it's a shame that there isn't somebody at the local authority who's, generally speaking, there isn't a delivery kind of officer at the local authority whose job it is to see that all the way through. And that's a big bugbear of mine. But there will be somebody at that promoter, the master developer, whose job it is to manage that project. And they will have a consultant team, who, and the planning consultant's job will be to manage that project. And if you can find that person, it is their job to be that kind of so day key to, contact to, for day the clerk, day, in other words, day isn't it? Day-to-day liaison. <laughs> I've managed, but it took me a year. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's. Yeah, I don't see why that shouldn't happen as a matter of course. I've been in that space, and there is a value, as I say, but it's also fair to say that maybe not everybody sees the value in that, but they should. To get in touch with the SLCC or ask advice from Andrew, tap in www.slcc.co.uk. Thank you to our guest, Sam Stafford, and of course, our president, Linda Carter, and to Andrew Tallerton too. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.